Good morning, everybody, and thank you, Tabitha, for sharing your story, and um, Mark and the kids. I understand you didn't even know that was going to play this morning, so I hope you're pleasantly surprised. We all have a journey, don't we? We all have a journey. That is something that we all have in common, and our journey leaves us with many questions, often unanswered ones. Two years ago, as a family, we uh, put our house up on the market. We live half an hour away from this church. And um, we drive out here um, a million times a week and (laughs) and, uh, a slight exaggeration there. But um, we thought, you know what, we really want to move closer to church. We want to be part of this community. We um, want to shorten our, uh, lessen our petrol bill. (laughs) Many, many, many solid reasons as to why we chose to put our house up on the market. And so we did. And... um, We renovated it as a result and uh, poured a fair bit of money into doing that, knowing that we would uh, get that back. And um, we set it all up and it was all looking gorgeous and well. And finally, our first open for inspection day turns up. And so on this day, the agents were, um, were saying things to us like, hey, guys, make sure you park down the side street put your second car down the side street. It's going to be a traffic jam. Like we've marketed this place so well. It's beautiful. There's so much demand. Um, We've had lots of inquiries. And so we were really, really, really excited about this. And so first day, and so we put the kids in the car and we drive off and we decided to have lunch somewhere. We're about half an hour away. And um, off we went, we're having lunch and we're talking about nothing else except how exciting this is and I wonder how many people are going to come through and leading up to this, we'd been to a whole stack of open for inspections ourselves because we're looking to buy, not just sell and uh, we would walk in and to some of the houses that we walked in, no kidding, they would be on the market one day and two days later they're sold or we'd walk into inspections and we'd be like walking sideways in these houses because they were so busy and so We're at lunch and um, the other thing we were doing other than chatting about how exciting this was is we pulled out a stack of contracts, sale contracts. Because you see, what we'd also done that week is not just prepare for our first open house inspection, we had also purchased a house in Berwick. And so that was extremely exciting. So here we are. But um, Peter and I couldn't make it to the agent on the same day to sign the contract. So What um, the agent allowed us to do is Peter went and grabbed the contracts on the Friday night and we were going to sign them overnight and then take them back on the Saturday. So here we are having lunch on the Saturday. We pull them out, we sign away and we're like, oh my gosh. And um, we're um, finished lunch and then we say to the kids, hey, we're just, let's just drive out and we'll drop these off while we're already sort of halfway. We'll drop them off to the agent and then um, we'll head home. And so, um, one thing led to the next and one of the kids had something on and so they're like, you know what, I don't want to be pain, but actually if you could drive me home first, that would be really helpful. So we're like, okay, okay, whatever. So we hop in the car and we're on our way home and then we get the call from the agent because the opens happened. And so we answer the call and uh, I answer the call and um, and I say, hi, how are you going? And he goes, guys, don't know how to really put this, but I don't have good news. We're like, what? And he goes, um, he says, we actually only had two families turn up to the open for inspection. And we're like, what? And everything within us sunk. So we're like, first of all, we started on the optimistic, oh, he must be just ridiculous. Like maybe this is their ploy. Maybe this is how they do it. Because then they want to talk you down to, you know, talk down your, your expected price or something. And then we're like, this is, this is a worry. This is a 
a really big worry, especially because we've just bought a house. And so we don't want to be in a situation where we have to give our house away for nothing for the worst possible price that comes in because we're now stuck and cornered in this other house that we've just bought. So we're thinking, 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 and we're like, oh my goodness, we've got the contracts in our hand and our only saving grace at this point to have not delivered them is the fact that one of our kids suggested to go home first. So we're talking minutes. And so we think, oh my goodness, what should we do? So we ring up the agent that we bought from and we said, hey, look, we're just going to be truthfully honest with you. This is actually what's happened. And so is it possible we would like to actually change the terms of our purchase contract and add in a clause that said subject to the sale of our own house? And he said, hey, I don't like your chances, but I'll ask the vendors and get back to you. Sure enough, he rings back in five minutes, longest five minutes of our life. And um, I answer the phone and he says, you know what, guys, I'm really sorry, but they're not willing to take that risk. And we're like, oh, what does that mean? And that house had fallen through our fingertips. In that moment, we were sad, but equally we were like, God, we, you must be saving us from something. You must have a greater wisdom in this because we're like down to minutes now. And so to cut a long story short, we had the auction. We didn't sell our house. We got a couple of really um, pathetic offers that we didn't accept. Then we got a really decent one. It was still far off the, 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 the benchmark, the bottom line where we'd said, this is, if we have to get this to know that this is God. And so we even rejected the semi-decent one. And we had lots of questions. More than, God, what are you thinking? We just spent a whole stack of money on a reno. And more than, are you like just like actually trying to tell us, God, that we've just spent 11 grand on an advertising bill that's now just gone down the drain? But we had questions about way deeper things and why and, and, and lots of tears and frustration and lots of questions. And I know for you as well, that you all have your own journeys and experiences in life where things happen and you stand back and you can't make any sense of it. And you have lots of questions and many that you don't even have answers for. And for some of you, you know about this thing called life's detours. Life's detours, when, you're th- when you think you're going in one direction, you're on a journey from A to B. And then suddenly you experience D, all the detours, and you think, what am I even doing here? How did we even find ourselves in this place? This wasn't the plan. I was going from A to D. What on earth? And maybe for some of you, that's happened way too many times for you, that now you actually shy back from taking bold, elaborate decisions in your life because you've just got this trauma going on of every time I try and go somewhere, It doesn't work out for me. And you're a bit over the obstacles and the deadlines and the detours because you see our detours present a whole stack of other D words, don't they? They come with disappointment and discouragement. And we feel so distracted from what we're actually trying to pursue. It feels like everything in the world is culminating to derail us. So what do we do in the detours of life which come at all of us? What do we do in these places where we find ourselves detouring, going around in circles, thinking we're going somewhere but not? We jump in the car and we put in the GPS coordinates and we're like, off we go. And then we're like, rerouting, 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 rerouting. 
How often can we cope with that? So what do we do in these moments? What do we do when life throws a stack of detours at us? And I want to unpack a story from the scripture about a young man by the name of Joseph. And many of you will know him as Joseph in the multicolored coat. It's a famous, well-known story. And I just want to unpack that because Joseph, you see, experienced many, many detours, some very significant ones, way grand, grander and more elaborate and more gut-wrenching than the average person has to face across their lifetime. So I want to work out for you and for me what we can glean from the life of Joseph and how he managed his detours and stayed sane. And so let me walk you through the story. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. He was highly favoured by his father. In fact, the scripture tells us that he was his dad's favourite son and he bought him this multicoloured coat and he was just this little top shot of a young boy amidst his brothers, highly loved. One day he had a dream and in his dream he dreamt that um, there was a, a, a series of wheat sheaves, some wheat, and he was some wheat. He, he was some wheat, and there, some, there were some other wheat sheaves. And in his dream, he dreamt that all these other wheat sheaves were bowing down to his wheat sheaf. And so he had this conviction and he had this belief that that really meant something significant. He believed that God was giving him this dream. And he believed that that meant that one day he would be a man of influence and that even his family would bow down, to, bow down to him. And so in all his wisdom and all his excitement, he heads off and he tells his other brothers and he tells them this dream. And so they listen and they look and they probably sort of put their hands on the hips and went, dude, what are you on about? Like what, what are you even suggesting that you're going to be king and you're going to be influential over us and we're going to bow down to you? Go and get a life. And so just in case they didn't hate him enough as a result of the way that he was his dad's favourite son, they hated him even more after this instant. And so on the story goes, and then one day he's home with his dad and all his brothers are out on the field working. And his dad says, hey, your brothers have been a little, a little while now. Why don't you go check on them and help them out? And so he heads over to where his brothers are and they're in a place called Shechem at this point. And he heads over, he finally finds them. and they're excited to see him but for different reasons than he's excited to see them and so they come up with this grand plan cut a long story short they decide that this is their moment and here's their time where they can actually get this boy back for thinking that he is going to rule over them and so they decide to grab him and they come up with an idea, maybe we should kill him. Then they go, no, 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 that's way too obvious. Let's go with something a little bit more subtle. So they decide to throw him into a pit or a cistern. And then, lo and behold, they find some traders passing by. And so they go, hang on, let's pull him out of the pit. Got a better idea, boys. Let's pull him out of the pit and sell him to these traders. And then we can sort of get the, the blood of a wild animal or a wild beast splattered all over him and then send his cloak home to dad and tell his dad that he tell our dad that he's been eaten by wild beasts. So they go with that plan. They sell him to these traders. They inform his dad. His dad mourns and grieves intensely. But he's now sold to these traders and he's gone. 
then. Through a series of events, excuse me, through a series of events, Joseph is sold by these traders into Potiphar's house. Potiphar was one of the um, Pharaoh's officials. So he's gone from being sold, this poor guy thinking, what on earth have I done to deserve this? He's now in the hands of these traders. They sell him over to Potiphar's house and things start to slowly improve. But he's thinking, why am I here? What have I done? What is going on? How long am I going to be here? Oh my goodness. He's in Potiphar's house and things finally start to improve for him. Finally start to look up and he finds great favour with Potiphar. And he does all the right things and he's a good man and he does things well and he impresses Potiphar and he's reliable and trustworthy and on and on. And so Potiphar decides that he is going to put him in charge of his whole house. And so he puts him in charge. And then over the duration of time, Potiphar's wife begins to lust over Joseph. And I think it's quite funny that the scripture tells us he was actually a good-looking man. (laughs) So she begins to lust over him. And so one day she corners him and she says, hey, I want you to sleep with me. And he's like, oh, my gosh, no way. Your husband, he's given me everything except for you. No way. I could never betray him like that and I could never betray God like that. Get away from me, you crazy lady. And she keeps pursuing him. Until one day she catches him and she's so intent and he realises that he's in danger. And so he slips out of his gown and he does an absolute runner. So she comes up with a grand plan and she turns up to her husband and she says, that boy, that boy Joseph that you think is amazing and wonderful and you've put him in charge, you know what he did? He tried to seduce me and when I started screaming, he got all frightened and he ran away and I'm now left with his gown. Plan. It's not going very well. His journey, his detours, they're not going to plan. (laughs) They thought every time he gets up, he's knocked back down. He's accused by Potiphar's wife. And so Potiphar kicks him out and he's in prison. Poor guy. (laughs) He's now in prison. And in prison, he happens to meet these two guys. They come in. We know them as the butler and the baker. And they used to be Pharaoh's butler and baker. And so the boy's coming to prison and he meets them. And through another series of events and another long-winded detour, these two boys one night have a dream. And they wake up and they're all a bit flustered and flurried. And, 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 and you know, they're like, oh, we had this dream. Seems really significant. Don't know what to do about it. it. Gosh, it's really, you know, messing with us. And he goes, well, maybe my God could interpret it through me. And so he gives them an interpretation of this dream. And he says to them, you, the butler, you're going to go back to Pharaoh's house and you're going to be reinstated. But you, the baker, Pharaoh's going to actually kill you. And these dreams actually come to pass, we hear. But as these two guys, the butler and the baker, are taken back into Pharaoh's house, Joseph happens to say to them, hey, boys, If this all unfolds, can you remember me when you get out? Like, put in a good word to Pharaoh for me. And so off they go. And the dreams actually eventuate. But you know what? Poor Joseph was stuck in prison for two more years because 
the butler got too excited with being free that he completely forgot to tell Pharaoh that there was this kid, there was this guy who interpreted his dream and he was really accurate. Two years later, Pharaoh wakes up in the middle of the night. Now Pharaoh's had a dream. Pharaoh has this dream. And then the butler finally remembers, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? Oh my gosh, I meant to tell you. Two years ago, I met this guy in prison and he interprets dreams. Pharaoh, you should bring him over and let him interpret this dream for you. Pharaoh goes, all right, what do I got to lose? So he brings him over, he interprets the dream and it's as accurate as accurate. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and we are told that Egypt is the strongest nation in the world at that time. This was the strongest nation in the world. And Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he puts him in charge of the palace and he says to him, no one in the world is more influential than you are for me. It's like, wow, is it finally opening up for me? All these detours, all these detours over many, many, many years and then finally, after all the gut-wrenching experiences that Joseph had experienced, he's restored into Pharaoh's palace. Restored into Pharaoh's palace. You know what I love about that? I love the fact that, you see, Joseph had a family dream. His very first dream was about him being influential over his family. But God had different ideas. God didn't just have a family dream for Joseph. God had a global dream for Joseph. A global dream. You see, God was using the detours that Joseph was going through to actually craft and launch him into his destiny. They weren't to derail him. They weren't to destroy him. They weren't to disappoint him. But his detours were intended for his destiny. You see, On the next screen, you'll see and be reminded of the story that I just shared. You see, if he was not sold to the traders by his brothers, what looked like a really bad detour, he would not have actually landed himself in Egypt. In Egypt, if he was not accused by Potiphar's wife, he would not have actually landed himself in prison. And if he didn't go to prison, he wouldn't have met the butler who then introduced him to Pharaoh who launched him into his destiny. You see, God's economy works very differently to yours and to mine. And so we look at this and we go, wow, that's gut-wrenching. It might be so far removed for some. That's a Bible story. That's just a piece of history. But I want you to pull it in. I want you to make it your own story. I want you to sit with it and remember your own journeys where you end up in places that look like intense detours, where you stand back and you go, I never meant to be here. This wasn't the plan. How is this even happening? I want you to think about that because I want to have a look at, well, how did Joseph cope with all these detours? Because he came out saying on the other side, how? Did he cope? And what can we learn from that? And I want to share something with you. In Genesis 39 2, it tells us, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him 
success in everything he did. You see, Joseph coped because the Lord was with Joseph. When he was in Potiphar's house, the Lord was with him. In the next verse, we also see when he was in prison, the Lord was with him as well. It says the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. The Lord was with Joseph and that's how he coped. The Lord was with Joseph and that's how he coped. And some of you might be sitting there and going, well, that's all well and good, Susie. The Lord's with everyone, but that doesn't mean we all cope. Absolutely. So if the Lord is with us all the time, and that's a fact, why is it that some people cope in life's detours and others don't? Because that's the question, right? And so I want to share this. The secret is in verse, is in Psalm 37 and verse 4. That's the secret. Because yes, God is with all of us in our detours. His presence is with all of us. But you and I know that just because his presence is with us doesn't make it easy and doesn't help us always cope. But the answer is in this. And it says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That is how to cope. That is how to live through the detours. That is how to find peace in the detours until the detours take us to our destiny. You see, the first Hebrew word is hepes. And hepes is the word for delight in Hebrew. It's mentioned 110 times in the scripture. And hepes is translated as leaning in, coming close and getting fixated, leaning in, coming close and getting fixated. You see, the way for you and I to cope with life's detours is not just to acknowledge God's presence. Yeah, he's there. Good head knowledge. Yep, says that in the Bible. Everyone else tells me that too. In fact, other people add a few more extra things and they go, hey, learn to dance in the rain and hey, life's not the journey not the destination, it's the journey and, hey, live in the moment. You just want to turn around and go, what do you know about my life? (laughs) It's way more than that. It's way more than cliches. cliches. It's way more than fancy, polished-up Instagram posts. It's way more than just knowing the presence of God is with me. It is delighting in his presence. It is leaning in, Hepes. It is leaning in, getting up close and personal, getting fixated with him, eyeballing him, just going, oh, you are everything. Getting so close that you can read his eyes. Getting so close that when he whispers into our ears, we hear it. Getting so close that he gets so big and magnified that it makes everything over here on the detour look a little less significant. So yes, we all experience detours. 
Yes, they all come with disappointment, discouragement, disillusionment, all the Ds. But the ultimate D to get through is to delight, to delight in our God, to delight, to lean in, bend in, get close, eyeball and get closer so that everything else becomes blurry and sits in the back. And so, church, this morning, I know one thing we have in common is the detours in life. Two years later, we still haven't sold our house. But we sit around and we enjoy our renovation. And sometimes we look at each other and we laugh and we go, God tricked us into a reno. (laughs) Thanks, God. But more than that, it's taught us that his wisdom is way grander than 